and I went through these cycles. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where I would struggle from our studios in Malibu, California, and get too serious and push myself too hard and make bad decisions in training. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Kearns, and this week we're going to give Mark Sisson a break from the in-studio recordings. We'll be back with you next week with some Q&A and some hot topics in the primal scene. But this week we thought we would play a recording of my presentation at PrimalCon down at Dreams to Loom earlier in March. And what I spoke about was cultivating an ideal mindset and disposition for peak performance. And I gave examples from my nine-year career as a professional triathlete when I was coached by Mark Sisson because I feel the athletic forum gives you an opportunity to learn the lessons of life and success and failure in a very intense and dramatic manner, and it carries over into all the other challenges and goals that you face in life. So I told some stories and showed some funny slides of guys dressed up in old-school competitive racing uniforms. I hope you enjoy the show and look forward to talking to you next week with Mark Sisson. This is Brad Kearns. Uh, I, was, I was a professional triathlete for nine years, competed on the circuit all over the world. Um, that was a long time ago. So, like, the older I get, the faster I used to be back then. And I feel very comfortable just, you know, marveling at my performances and all that since the years passed. And it's like, wow, that was me. I don't even recognize that guy. But I did go to work in a Speedo every day, as you could see. So, you know, as a... As an athlete, you're very exposed. It's, you, you learn the lessons of success and failure very intensely and dramatically for everyone to see. And you're really putting yourself out there kind of like an actress or something like that. It, it's very competitive. It's hardcore. But that allows you to have such an amazing growth experience because there's no uh, nuances and subtleties like there might be in the workplace when you were gunning for your promotion and you got passed over by some clown because they kissed up better and all that stuff. An athlete, you get on the starting line, you go, and the best guy makes... Um, in triathlon, which is a small sport, um, the winner makes you know ten times the amount of money as the the guy who gets sixth or seventh. It might be a minute behind. It might be a really nice guy, and just was a little slower. So um, it was a really fun journey for nine years. Uh, Mark Sisson, do you know him? He was my coach. He's a famous triathlon coach. Oh, actually, now he's on to other things. I'm not quite sure, but so that's how we connected. Was um, Mark was an old-time triathlete before me. He was fourth place in the Hawaii Ironman back in the 80s, and then after that he became a trainer and a coach uh, in Los Angeles where I was based, and that's how we um, hooked up. He was uh, the, the greatest coach and revolutionized the sport and a lot of the training concepts that are, um, you know, you might have read in the Primal Blueprint about uh, avoiding chronic cardio and being good to your body uh, have, have been embraced for all those years. So, okay, so the problem is, have you heard of flawed conventional wisdom? Have we heard that one before? It's, there's flawed conventional wisdom. Not only about what to eat, but we're socialized to be in this rat race mindset um, from the time we're born, time we're little kids. I just got finished with a 12-year binge of coaching young athletes. My kids are now high school age, so high school is time to step back and let the, the high school coaches coach and you watch and clap in the stands. Right, parents? It's time to step back and watch the high school coach. Some of the parents don't get that yet, but um, when my kids were little, I wanted them to have a positive, well-rounded, wholesome experience in sports. So I coached everything, and I was in there taking over. I don't need an assistant coach because we're going to do it this way, and we're going to have fun and emphasize all the good things. But generally speaking, 
starting with little kids and their grades and their bumper sticker of the honor student and their hierarchy in the competitive sports leagues, everyone socialized that this is the, the route to success and to happiness and all those things. But um, Lily Tomlin, I think, is uh, this quote attributed to the problem with the rat race is even when you win, you're still a rat. And we get measured and judged by everything we do. Uh, it's superficial. So you go to a um, gathering and you, you get introduced or someone introduces you as like, oh, this guy's an old-time number three world-ranked triathlete. Big deal, you know? It's like I have to separate myself from how cool that is to be a well-rounded, balanced person, right? Um, and what happens is when uh, we subscribe to this rat race mentality, we struggle. Um, we can develop a distorted perspective. We can d become emotionally frail because we have so much riding on the outcome and so much expectation and people measuring and judging us. And what we see is um, even people who are successful, like the celebrities, they can't get their real life together. So Russell Brand, oh, that's not Russell Brand. That's Lance. Yeah, Lance has had a little trouble, even though the greatest champion, but all those other things wrapped up in winning so badly that he had to, uh, you know, make bad decisions in real life. And Russell Brand, I mean, how could he, you know, dump Katy Perry for, in, in favor of drugs? You know her song, the... You fall asleep during foreplay because the pills you take are more your forte. Come on, sing along. I'm not messing around to watch you go down. Want to be your lover, not your f***ing mother. Good song. Okay. So to, uh, the singing wasn't good, but the lyrics are good. Um, so I want to tell you how I came to embrace this uh, concept of developing a pure motivation for peak performance. And to do that, we have to go back in time uh, a few years to the beautiful campus of University of California, Santa Barbara. Anyone familiar with it? Any gauchos in the room? It's a pretty nice spot, as you can see, overlooking the ocean. And it was such a wonderful time in my life because I was, um, uh, first I was a runner and then I got injured and then uh, got introduced to the beautiful new sport of triathlon. So I was swimming in the ocean and biking through the mountains of Santa Barbara and uh, uh, just developing myself as an athlete. And if the waves were up, we'd go surfing that day. And if um, people felt like going to school, sometimes we'd go to class. And the classes were great and it was really interesting and it was wonderful. Um, and then a great tragedy occurred in my life all of a sudden. Graduation. So I went from wearing the thongs and the shorts and the t-shirt and riding my bike around to uh, an hour commute each way in rush hour traffic in downtown Los Angeles uh, to Citicorp Towers right there by the freeway, 27th floor, and I was a staff auditor for the world's largest accounting firm. Hey, but if, you know, if that's your calling, that's great. I don't mean to disparage the career, but to me, it was like jail. And actually, the orientation was down in the basement of the building for some reason, and I, I, I was like in prison, and everyone else was all excited and taking notes and asking about the retirement plan and the 401k, and I'm like, oh my God. It was a, it was a rude awakening. So I was so miserable that after 11 and a half weeks, I got up the guts to meet with my boss, and I told him that I was going to retire from the firm. Um, <laughs> And, and uh, it, you know, I wasn't getting headhunted quite yet, but um, my, my decision was I was going to pursue a career as a professional triathlete. And he smirked nicely at that. And it, it, the triathlon sport was so young back then that there really wasn't an opportunity to be a professional. 
there was only a few guys making money, these heroes who would win all the races. And, but, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was an outlet that I loved in college, and it was just better than being in the office building. So when I walked out of that lobby for the last time and I, I stepped out in the street, I felt the, mo the greatest sense of freedom and happiness that I'd ever had. And now I was in control of my life again. I had this awesome, compelling goal that I was going to go for with all my heart and soul with the great motivation of not you know, wanting to go back to the accounting firm. But it was, it was extremely pure because I was doing it just for the love of it. It wasn't you know, a higher salary and better benefits. It was nothing, but it was giving me a chance to go outside and push and challenge my body and treat myself like an athlete and rest when I was tired. And so I didn't have any um, pressure on me or anything of that nature. So I was very intuitive and successful um, with, with just listening to my body and taking what my body gave me and all these principles that are the ultimate expression of uh, how to perform as an athlete. So I'd just wake up and if I felt great, I would ride my bicycle all day long and I'd go climb in the mountains and go far beyond what my um, previous uh, uh, limitations were because I had no limitations and I had no preconceived notions. It was a, it was a big uh, learning experience for me. And then I went out to um, the races and the cool thing about triathlon, unlike like a golfer or tennis player, you tow the starting line with the best, best guys in the world. And so you can measure yourself right then and there um, for a short time, and then they start going faster than you. Um, and then you get to the finish line. And, but I always had a chance to you know, check the splits in the, each different event and watch and monitor my progress. And everything was, uh, was self-referred. Like All I cared about was me getting better. I didn't care that I was 24th or 21st. I mean, I cared, but it wasn't the, the most important thing because I was in a state of pure motivation. So I was always looking. There was always a positive growth experience no matter how badly I got my butt kicked because I might have been better on the run than some of the other guys in the swim or whatever, okay? So I'd go around in the circuit and, and I had a good time traveling around. And um, Oh, so yeah, we got to fly around in private jets and it was great and um, not really... <laughs> Um, that's actually Lance's jet, which I got to ride on. Um, and it's, it's the only way to fly, really. And you can tell how, how little I've flown privately, because what kind of dork, you know, comes out the, climbs out the captain's window to take a picture of flying private. I'm like, hey, can you go down the stairs and, and show us your ass and uh, pretend like you're carrying my bags up to the plane and I'll, I'll get in your seat? Oh, sure, no problem. So this was just um, crashing a ride on... It was crashing a ride on Lance's plane. We, I, flew, I flew coach. I, I, would, you know, I would have flown in the baggage section when I was a uh, rookie year just trying to get around. And then we'd go and you know, share a hotel room with seven other athletes. And it was, you know, it was a grind. But it, everyone loved it. It was great. Yeah. Um, but then the great thing about um, the, the finish of my rookie year, I'd gone through and I got, you know, I'd get fourth or seventh in a small race against the, the lower level guys, and then I'd get 17th or 21st against the big guys like these guys. And these were um, the two top guys in the world at that time. And at the end of the year, for the first time ever, they created this new race out in Palm Springs where um, they kind of brought the, the top triathlete against the top duathlete, which is running and biking only. So it's sort of a different sport, but very closely related. So they created this long, challenging uh, race, a series of three races in the winter, where they would pit the two number one guys who've never raced each other. They were both legends. This guy, Molina, the Terminator, was just unbelievable. He never got tired. He'd race every week all over the world. And Kenny Souza was even more of a character. He was likened to um, Axl Rose often, often mistaken for Axl Rose. But he'd never lost um, a duathlon in his life. He just was far superior to everybody. 
And so I was so excited to, number one, be on the starting line uh, with these guys and be in the same race, but also um, see who was going to come out with this big showdown, who was going to come out ahead. And so everyone was so excited, all the racers, and they took off on this course in the desert. And it was actually really, really difficult and windy and hot and more hilly than anyone thought. We had to run two miles in the soft sand in the, on the desert levee. And so me being you know, self-directed again, I just went at my own pace. And I thought, this is going to be a long day. I don't want to kill myself. So I was 24th out of 27 professionals after the first segment of the race. And then what happened was I started feeling good and everyone started getting tired. And at the finish line, there was a big surprise. This guy was the winner. Yeah, notice my, um, my sponsor package was my own skin. That's all I had. I was the only people that wanted to do a deal. Actually, you know, the Oakley, if you recognize those Oakleys, super old retro, I just dated myself to mid 80s. You go on the Oakley website right now, there's the vintage uh, limited edition release from old school. Those are $240, those piece of crap plastic glasses. <laughs> right now, they just launched them. I should have saved them. Yeah, so back the previous several months before that, I just starting out of my career, and I wrote this nice inquiry letter to Dear Oakley Sunglasses, I'm a recent honors graduate of UC Santa Barbara, now pursuing a career as a professional triathlete. I would sincerely like to represent your company in my competitions. I recently placed 17th in Bakersfield and 21st at Benelli Park. Would you mind giving me a free pair? I would love it and cherish it. And I got this form letter back like, Dear athlete, thank you for, you know, <laughs> taking the time to mail this. And... Uh, uh, you know, go to your local retailer and you can find some of our wonderful products. So I was, I was kind of like, you know, I was a little bummed about that. So what I did was I, I scratched off the Oakley logo. You can't see it. It's too blurry. I tried to blow it up for one of those. Um, and I got the little decals and I wrote Bradley instead of Oakley. <laughs> There's more of that story coming up in the next few slides. Uh, so that's what I learned from this incredible experience um, right at the, uh, early in my career. And wow, what a fluke. This surprise guy wins the race. The top guys didn't pace themselves. Sure enough, there's a rematch six weeks later. And everyone's now gunning for me. I went from anonymous skin boy Tarzan to now people are calling me. I'm getting attention. People are interviewing me. So I wanted to see, like, you know, do I really have what it takes to race with these, in, these legends, these guys that I worship, these heroes? So uh, about a week before the rematch race, I got on my bike in Los Angeles, and I decided to see if I could push my outer limits. I knew I'd recover in a week. So I got on my bike, and I rode as fast as I could for 140 miles into the Mojave Desert to Barstow, California. If you know where Barstow is, it's on the way to Vegas. It's a long way from LA. And I didn't stop, and I just put my head down and rode it like there was no tomorrow. And I got to Foster's Freeze in Barstow, and I was shaking with excitement because I had, you know, what you would call a, a breakthrough where, you know, when you tell young people like, hey, you can do anything you want in life. You could be the president of the United States, all that kind of nonsense. You have to, there's no such thing as manufacturing confidence with positive affirmations or any of that. You have to go out there and, and get yourself involved in the fray and push yourself and, and put yourself on the line. And so that day when I finished that ride, I realized with all my heart that I belonged up with those guys. So the second race, instead of uh, hanging out in 24th position and pacing myself, I just got up in the front, and soon after the race started, I just, you know, looked back, and I'm like, this is, this is, this is how slow you're going? Okay, I'm gone. And I took off, and, um, you know, these are the best guys in the world. It's crazy. You know that expression, uh, you won the race by a mile? So I, I won the race by a mile. The second place was a mile behind me. Um, yeah. 
Wow, clapping for so long ago. Uh, so then, you know, a week later comes in the, the magazine, comes in the mailbox, right? Competitor magazine, which is the Bible of the sport for all the endurance athletes. So I get out to my mailbox, and um, that's, the, um, that's the guy on the cover, the king of the desert. Yeah. So, okay, now you can see uh, the Oakley uh, insignia, right? So um, the same guy that sent me the form letter uh, sent me another package after I won, and he said, um, I hope this is a good start. I'm happy to hook you up. And I had 21 pairs of those. And, um, you know, six shirts, a duffel bag, all the accessories you could ever want, a little duffel bag, a medium duffel bag, a large duffel bag. And like I said, I mean, it's, when you're an athlete, it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult to, to maintain that perspective. My uncle, who plays golf in the winter, he's from Wisconsin, he still calls me the king of the desert and whatever, 25 years later. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading the story in my driveway, and I'm sitting in the sun and enjoying this exciting account of this amazing new athlete. And they get to the, the end, and um, Molina, the Terminator, who was a man of very few words, but he was very profound, and he was a, a good pop-off, he was asked for a quote about this whole deal and this new guy. And um, he offered up a really nice quote, which they highlighted in the highlight quote. Can you read it? <laughs> if you can't read in the back, it says, uh, if he wins again, he'll be puking at the finish line. Um, and this is, this is the Terminator who said this about me. And I went from, I was re I'm still, I'm actually feeling the same uh, um, nervous system reaction right now that I did so long ago where I started to shake and I started to have this funny feeling in my stomach, this nervous feeling. And that's when things switched for me. And, you know, he got into my head and the perspective of all this that had happened so quickly. And I rode my bike to Barstow and I was really fast and I'm going to come try my best again and maybe I'll win. And now all of a sudden, things starting to change. I'm starting to get spun out of that center, that, that uh, peak performance center and into the rat race mentality, right? Before, I'd go for a bike ride, I'd go ride 84 miles, awesome ride, I'd come home, I'd eat, I'd take a nap, that was my lifestyle, the triathlete lifestyle. Now I'd ride 84 miles, I'd come home and I'd have 21 messages on my answering machine. And it was all people that wanted to give me something or wanted something from me, and so my nap didn't get taken. And then with the, um, the next rematch coming up, what happened was I started to depart from all those things that made me successful. So when I was tired, I'd go home and take a nap, all that kind of stuff. No, I had to measure in time every single workout because now I was the guy. I was the marked guy. I couldn't take a day off. And then I'd check the, you know, my usual loop where I'd wake up and run the five-mile loop on the trail. Now I had to you know, make sure my, my time was up to standard. If it was slow, I'd get frustrated. And so I went down into a tailspin away from all this magic because I, I really think you know, it's magical for a no-name guy to come and ascend and beat the top guys in the world. But now I was like struggling with all these things. Um, they did end up kicking my butt in the third race. I, I got fourth, which is still respectable, but it, you know, it wasn't another upset. And I will take credit for it. You remember that Kenny Souza guy with the, the Speedo? After I beat him twice, he went on a 44 race win streak. He didn't lose for years and um, he was the best of all time and had a great career. And then a guy beat him several years later and that guy beat him and retired on the spot. Because that's all he, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I did this, did, did this sport for nine years, um, and I went through these cycles where 
I would struggle and get too serious and push myself too hard and make bad decisions in training, being impatient and wanting to get from fitness level A to fitness level B faster than it normally takes and all those kind of things that athletes do when they feel the pressure or getting caught up in um, where, where I was ranked or how much money this sponsor was paying me versus the other guy and all those rat race things that threw me off my, my center. And then what happened was I'd get so frustrated, I'd get burnt out or I'd fly home from um, the Gold Coast of Australia Australia in the, the richest triathlon of all time, and I dropped out of it because I was overtrained. And two or three weeks before that, I was ready to knock off you know, the, the, the best guys and win great riches that they've never before put out in the sport. And I had to fly home in a body bag while all the other guys were counting their money. And that was one of the lowest points of my career. But after you get that low and that discouraged and that frustrated, you realize, F it, like the song lyrics, and you got to go back and rediscover what you're all about. And that I like going out on that five-mile trail run, not because I'm trying to beat the Australian guy, but because I love to do it, just for the sake of doing it and for the sake of embracing that challenge and using success or failure as a growth experience. Um, so these are the, uh, the tips, the practical tips now that the, the yarn is over to help you cultivate uh, a, a pure motivation in any peak performance endeavor, okay? So the first one, balance stress and rest, okay? something that we just um, seem to disregard these days. And like Mark said at his talk, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, of the thinking that the next big breakthrough, like you got the diet handled. Most people here got the diet handled. Do you understand? Do we need to talk about like, is Kate here? Do you want to come up and talk about how grains and sugars, you know, cause glycation, all that? Do you, you understand not to eat that crap and to eat a clean, healthy, high nutritional value diet, right? We understand about some of the exercise principles that you don't go out there and fry your brain every single day in the name of getting fit, right? So we have those basics down. Now I think the next breakthroughs are going to come in things like uh, optimizing your circadian rhythm, my New Year's rev resolution and revelation is that I need more sleep, and I already get around nine hours a night. I'm going for 10 in 2014. That's my goal. Because I notice, like, you can notice those little nuances. If you uh, disregard your circadian rhythm mainly by introducing artificial light and digital stimulation after dark, that's the main screw-up that we have, okay? When it gets dark, wherever you are, uh, uh, Tulum, um, um, Stockholm, Gothenburg, one of those places, um, Sydney, uh, uh, Tasmania, whatever. When it gets dark, it's time to mellow out and wind down. That means in Portland in the summer, it gets dark at uh, 10.05, help me out, somebody. I mean, it gets dark late. You can stay up later, have more fun, play some twilight golf, whatever, and then wind down after it gets dark. In the, in the wintertime when it's 4.40 and it's dark, that means that you're probably going to need to sleep more in the winter and mellow things out a little more, okay? So that's, that's cool. That's good news. You can have long, long, nice summers. If you're on the equator, it's going to be the same all time. But we have to, pay more, we have to be more respectful of that. So again, I'm referencing my athletic experience saying, when I was an athlete, no one messed around with my sleep because I knew it was life or death matter, right? Or uh, 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 paying the rent or not paying the rent kind of thing. Okay, so that's a picture of me. That's actually flying home from the event in Gold Coast of Australia, um, a little more upset than the other guys. Um, but I spent, during my nine-year career, I spent half my life in that position, asleep. So I slept 10 hours a night. That's why I'm trying to get back up to where I was back then when I was a young man. And then I took a two-hour nap every single day. So half my life was asleep, and then, you know, the other half was eating and um, training. So 
That's, that's, you know, that's, that's to reach a high level peak performance, great. So everyone else who's got all these warring motivations, I do love my Netflix, my, my, my queue is getting long, I wanna watch these movies, it's so exciting, I'm so into this series. You have to weigh and balance that with how much sleep do I really need to perform at my peak um, in real life? And it's something that requires, like that Mark Sisson guy said, my old coach, did you hear the part where I gave you some love about the old days of coaching and stuff? Oh, it was great. Anyway, um, now, now I lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? Yeah. Uh, huh? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, finding the right amount of sleep is... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of choices. That was where I was going. Yeah, right? You want to choose to stay up late and do all your thing, and um, you might be falling asleep at the next lecture. I don't know. I'm trying to just at least be as obnoxious as possible for those people that stayed up till Delandro. Would you stay up till four or something? Delandro's awake and standing, which I got to give him credit for that. If I stayed up till four, I would be like this guy in the picture. Okay. Um, I wrote workplace on there because what I notice is um, there's a point in your workday when you've been grinding away, especially if you're a knowledge worker on a computer, also with the sledgehammer if you're out in the ditch too. There's a point in the afternoon where you're going to notice your peak performance decline. So when I'm working the sledgehammer after about four to seven hours of straight hammering, I need to take a break. On the computer, same thing. You're going to notice a place where your performance nods off. I like to go take a 20-minute nap. First, I text Mark, make sure it's okay, it's cool. I go take my nap. Sometimes it turns into 90, I'll just tell you. It's the way it is sometimes. But when you, when you notice a decline in peak performance, you have to respect the idea that your brain needs regular breaks to refresh and, and have downtime. So downtime in general in your life. Okay, so number one, balance stress and rest. Number two, release your attachment to the outcome. So what I mean by that is um, don't attach your happiness or your self-esteem to the results of what you do. So I reference back to my rookie year when I was out there racing and getting 21st and 24th and 17th and 12th. I wasn't attached. I didn't have an investment in, in, in being the 12th place guy because it, it wasn't anything to brag about or write home about either, right? Um, when I knocked off the, the two number one uh, top guys in the world, then it was a little different story because then it's very easy to um, welcome the ego into the game and say, wow, now you can attach yourself to being number one and you kick those fools out, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, right? So it's, it's, it's good to keep a balance and a balanced, refreshing perspective so that um, success and failure are both growth experiences. And that's what I mean by a, a pure motivation. So you're doing something because you love it. Whether or not you get the big, uh, you land the big client, or whether or not anyone buys your book, right, Mark? You wrote that book out of the kindness of your heart because you had a story to tell, and you didn't even care if anyone bought it, right? Right? <laughs> he crashed his browser checking the Amazon rankings the day that it went up to number two overall, the Primal Blueprint, back in 2009. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm joking around, but listen. That, that's, a, that's a good point that I brought up. Thank you, Brad. It's okay to be in the game. It's okay to get caught up. You can get caught up in the right stuff, okay? So the celebrities that have a, a, a charitable sense, like, like Lance, right? I made fun of him. Um, I made fun of him and all that. He made some bad mistakes. He also got caught up in spreading the word about cancer and raising $300 million. For good for him. He got caught up in some good stuff as well. So you can choose what to get caught up in. And then, you know, in the, in the meanwhile, get over yourself, right? That's number two. Finally, cultivate an intuitive approach, okay? 
EMH is energy, motivation, and health. And if you read your 90-day journal, which you all should have, Primal Blueprint 90-day journal, it has a scoreboard, a little grid every day where you can write in a score, one through 10, your, your energy level, your own sense of your energy level, your motivation level, and your health, okay? So when you walk into Fitter London and you say, hey guys, I'm a six today. My motivation is five or six. My energy is a five or six. My health, my health's a nine, but I'm, I'm around five, six. You want to calibrate a five, six workout. If you're a one or two, you want to go back to sleep for a few hours, right? So when I was the young punk, didn't know what I was doing, didn't have any training books because Mark hadn't published his first training book for two more years. I didn't know how to train for the sport. So I just used my own stupid common sense where if I was tired, I'd do an easy workout or I'd go seven miles on my bike and turn around. Instead of 84, I'd go 14. And it was a no-brainer, a no-brainer. Everyone, no matter how experienced you are at whatever you're doing, I'm talking fitness parameters a lot, but whatever you're doing, you have that little voice inside you that knows the right thing to do all the time. One of my favorite examples is you get a sore throat or you feel a little hot. And as an athlete, that would happen um, about six, six to eight times a year. I'd get sick a lot, I'd get a cold a lot. And every time you get a slight, little, tiny, scratchy throat, the usual ensuing consequence is you get a cold. And then you battle uh, subpar energy levels, subpar physical performance for about two weeks, especially the first week and even the second week, you're still recovering and hacking up and all that. So I finally realized an intuitive approach, if I got a tiny little scratchy sore throat, yes, I was a professional athlete, I had different circumstances, if I got a tiny little scratchy sore throat, I would unplug everything in my life and go to sleep. And it might be a day, and it might be two days, and then I'd get up and I'd swallow and I'd be fine and I'd get back at it. But when I disregarded even something as simple as a sore throat, I paid the price. I know we still have to go do our um, you know, six brain surgeries that are on the schedule for, for uh, Thursday, but if at all possible, you can respect, with the highest intensity, respect your energy, your motivation, and your health, that's going to help you uh, perform at your peak and also enjoy it and, and um, you know, be be involved in things for the right reasons, especially, if you, um, especially fitness, because physical fitness, it doesn't operate in the same parameters as graduating law school, passing the bar, and getting hired by a good firm, or uh, uh, you know, rising up the corporate ladder, or what have you. That's a very linear approach. You gotta complete 180 units to graduate college or get your degree, and there's no, there's no nuance. But in terms of fitness, the body doesn't operate like a robot. Some of the guys try to act like a robot with all the um, substances they put into their veins, but a general person who's not doped up is not operating like a robot. So you have to honor your energy level, motivation level, and health. You know, how do you know where that line is? I mean, sometimes, especially with motivation, it's cold out, it's dark, you, you had a busy day at work, you know you're supposed to go work out. So my, my sense is like, take the first step, you know, get dressed, get ready, go, go to the gym, whatever you're doing, get into it for, for five to seven minutes, and then you can you really let that intuition kick in and realize whether it's the right thing to do or not, assuming you enjoy it. If you hate it, then you got huge problems, and Matt and Karis will sit down in the corner in the lobby during the next hour and talk you through why you hate exercise, or Daryl, or Mike Delandro, or any of these guys. Um, but let's say you, you like it, and you just want to make sure that you're making the right decisions and honoring that intuitive approach, um, sometimes it gets tricky and you make mistakes. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, I, I still uh, make mistakes and get into overtrained state where I shouldn't have done the most recent workout. And that's just learning from experience and, um, you know, 
taking those, taking those lessons and adding them to the database rather than what I see most commonly, especially in the endurance scene that I've been in for a long time, is that switch is completely switched off. Remember the first slide with the, the switches on the, the blood cell? Those are the gene switches that you switch on and off. A lot of those brain switches are switched off in a great many athletes. I don't know about in London, but in America, people go there and they just uh, use fitness as an outlet for their compulsive tendencies. And it's too bad because there's a much better way and a more enjoyable way if you just kind of slow down and realize what am I all about? What are my main goals and my main purpose? And so, you know, my main purpose is all those primal blueprint things like uh, delay the aging process, uh, enjoy myself, set an example for my family and other people and all that kind of stuff. So if I'm out there training with a sore throat, um, I'm an idiot, right? Because I'm not, I'm not doing any of those things, right? We're accelerating the aging process. I'm sure a lot of you read the Primal Blueprint. We, um, Mark talks about this all the time. Like, you can either really get healthy and fit and, and promote your health through your fitness endeavors, or you can accelerate the aging process. And in many cases, some of our uh, uh, peers on the extreme endurance scene have had serious heart problems, dropped dead while working out, the, the picture of fitness, but very unhealthy because they've overdone it and ignored all the sensibility in the science. So um, when, when we finished conversing about training, Mark would always, uh, when, before he hung up the phone or in person, would say, remember, trust, trust yourself. Because you always have to reinforce that to a highly competitive person, that, that I, I needed to trust the process of fitness. I needed to avoid any possible insecurities of looking at some of these rip physical specimens and Australia would pump out like 20 new guys each year. It was ridiculous. They just had such a talent pool and you'd see these guys and how hard they trained and feel intimidated easily because they're new and they're fast and they're strong and I had to stay focused on my own approach just like I did when I was the 24th place guy. Makes sense? Okay. So balance stress and rest, release your attachment to the outcome, cultivate an intuitive approach. Do we have another slide? Oh, Roger Bannister. Another Brit on the slideshow, amazing, uncanny. That's 1954, the first man ever to break four minutes in the mile, if you haven't heard of him. And he, he gave this quote in his book, Struggle Gives Meaning and Richness to Life. And I like the quote, but it requires a lot of reflection. So we're going to have a five-second period of reflection. Because it, it, it could be misinterpreted, right? And it, struggle gives meaning and richness to life only when you're in the proper mindset and have a pure motivation. Otherwise, you're just struggling and it sucks, like a crappy job in the 27th floor of the Citicorp Towers in downtown LA. I was struggling every single day. It was brutal um, because my motivation wasn't pure and what was I doing there? I remember, oh man, some of these bosses, I don't want to be sexist or anything, but some of these female bosses I had, one day my girlfriend uh, sent me a, a bunch of uh, balloons and it was delivered to some stupid bank where we were doing an audit. So the delivery person comes in and brings me all these balloons and my boss is like, oh my gosh, that is so sweet. That is unbelievable. No one has ever given me anything on Valentine's Day. I would kill to, you know, going on and on about the balloons. Oh, can I see it? Oh, you got candy hearts at the bottom weighing it down. Oh, that's wonderful. And so at lunch, I decided, you know what, I'm going to get a Valentine's card and say, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, thanks for having me on your team. And I gave her the card and she opens it up and like no reaction almost. And she said, thank you but I hope you understand this will not be considered when I, when I prepare your P66 report. <laughs> and the, the P66 report was like, you know, your evaluation of what kind of worker you were. <laughs> it's like, do you think I care about the P66 report? I don't care. You don't care about my card? I don't care about your stinking P66 report. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, it's good to get back at people sometimes when you're in front of a group, you know? All those people that wronged me, the Oakley guy, he's embarrassed by the thing still, you know? That's why he sent me 21 pairs. Most people got seven or eight pairs, not me. I got 21 because I, he, he, knew I, he, he knew I stuck it to him. Yeah. I'll show Mark some of these slides he missed in case he's on there or something. Yeah, so, and everybody gets to do, uh, you know, review. So there's the, you know, the rat race that we've been conditioned to um, for our whole lives, right? That's what happens even to celebrities and successful people get, you know, get in trouble. I won't sing again if you guys don't mind. So I went to UCSB, then I had the tragedy of graduating, um, traveling around on the circuit, kicking both their butts, right? F discovering how power of the pure motivation and then getting off track because I'm, you know, getting caught up in the rat race and then I got my, um, my keys. Oh, that was fast. Yeah. And then um, the question was raised over here when I rudely ignored you. Yeah. Average Joe totally can overtrain. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think that, or they, they counter this and say, well, you know, you're, you're an expert athlete. You have, you have all this knowledge and, and background, and so, you know, you're able to better calibrate with your intuition than someone who's a beginner and doesn't know any better. And I, I strongly disagree with that. So whatever level you're at, if it's your first six weeks in the gym and you hired a personal trainer as a New Year's resolution or someone gave you that gift under the Christmas tree um, and you can't walk after your first seven workouts and you can't put your shirt on, um, those are intuitive signs that maybe you're uh, entering into too extreme of an experience and you need to settle back and feel refreshed and invigorated after workouts rather than exhausted. And also that, that notion of on the, on the rat race slide where we're talking about intensity and focus and discipline, um, those things have a place obviously when you're a peak performer and you're setting goals and it wasn't always the easiest thing to um, get out there and put in all those miles on my bike. But for example, on the day when I did that 140 mile ride to Barstow, um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a struggle, it wasn't like, um, I had to motivate myself to keep going. I was super excited and super, uh, 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 you know, just engrossed in the moment and, and pedaling every stroke, and it went by like nothing. For most people, that's a little bit too far to have that enlightening growth experience. For me, that was what I needed to do at that point. But for the next person, it might be a 14-mile bike ride, and that's all you need. You don't have to do the uh, 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 team and training 26.2-mile marathon training club. 26.2 miles is too far for a beginner. And they bring people, I get to slam them for a second. They bring people into a room like this, it's this many people, and they say, welcome, we're gonna raise money for this great cause, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and all of you in six months are gonna cross the finish line at a marathon. Yay, hooray, that's great. Well, we could do it tomorrow, I could do it right now with you guys, if I put a gun to your head. Well, I'm gonna, we're gonna go to the airport on foot, and we're gonna get there by the time your flight leaves on March 6th, and you guys will both succeed. We'll both, I'll get you to the airport. No rides. We'll, we'll try to stash some water every like 20K or something. But you, you'll be, you can do anything um, with, with a flawed approach, right? Okay, that's, what I'm, that's the difference. So maybe 26.2 miles is too far and too extreme for a true fitness, health, life uh, uh, affirming positive experience. Maybe 13 is better, you know? The swimmer guy in the back. Yeah, he said, what do you do if, if you've had an injury? And obviously when you're an athlete, you got a lot wrapped up in it. A lot of the stakes are really high. And then you get injured, and so your identity is wrapped up in it. And the pleasure, you enjoy it, you love it, you love to do it, and now you can't do it. 
So um, that happened to me in college. I was a runner. I was uh, uh, ninth in the state championships in the mile in California, 12th in the National Junior Olympics. I was a big shot, and I went to UCSB, and um, I was a recruited athlete, and I got there. I had one good season, and then I got sick or injured five seasons in a row. Mono, stress fracture, uh, uh, IT band, and as a young person, you know, developing your identity as a runner, it was a huge, devastating blow to me. Um, so what I did was I, I drank a lot of alcohol for about two and a half years. I just would go partying like a regular college student. I'm like, hey, this isn't that bad, actually. Oh, this is fun. Yeah, and that's what I did. Next question. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> so um, I, I just said, I said that uh, briefly, I discovered triathlon. So I found a new, exciting, you know, passionate outlet. And, you know, I know guys who, uh, uh, Bobby Rohan, my, my training buddy, 18 years old, was rendered a quadriplegic in a bicycle accident. One of my training guys in LA. And now he's a, um, a, a chair a basketball player, right? So he had to discover a new passion. There's always a way to discover a new passion and find a purpose in life. And um, when, I ha when I was forced to retire, uh, from triathlon after nine years. I was forced to retire because people started beating me that weren't supposed to. That was a tough one too. So I had to, you know, redirect my entire being and my entire uh, purpose and, and career into something entirely different and in fact sedentary and sitting in front of a computer screen, right? So it's, it's always a challenge and an injury is a, a tough one, but um, I, I think there's ways to redirect is, would be my answer, uh, including alcohol, I guess, but... Yeah, thanks, Lauren. What's your current fitness routine, um, knowing how bad chronic cardio is for you and um, all that kind of stuff? So it's true. Uh, you know, what I did for nine years, I think, accelerated the aging process. And when I was 30 years old, I retired. I raced from age 20 to age 30. And when I was 30, I literally felt like I was 80. And I, I felt like an 80-year-old man. When I woke up every day, I was tired, I was stiff, I was sore. Um, I was telling you guys, I, I, I lived um, six-tenths of a mile from my mailbox, and I drove my car there every single day. Even though I'd ride my bike, you know, 250 miles a week without fail, I never once rode my bike or walked to the mailbox because I was always looking for the lazy way out, okay? And that's, it, it was sort of a... You know, it's, it's a heck of a way to live in, in pursuit of a, a really compelling, intense goal. So nine years is plenty of time to do that. And now I've transitioned to um, an approach that has, you know, more balanced fitness goals. So, uh, like, where's that first slide? Let's check out some high jump in there. So, in my opinion, high jump is... Um, a really wonderful, challenging sport, and it's one of my great passions now. Um, I'm not, you know, genetically adapted for it. I'm an endurance athlete, but due to the attrition process, now at age 49, my jump is, um, my height is uh, equivalent to um, top 15 in the country for old guys 45 to 49, which is, you know, it's not, it's not saying a lot. It's just there's nobody left. Actually, one of the guys on the list... Uh, was from my area in high school. He jumped 6'8 in high school, which is state level, almost national ranking. I jumped five feet in high school, and I could jump 5'7 now as an old guy because I'm better at it, and I train, and I go in the gym and do squats and things that I didn't do when I was a skinny runner geek in high school. And he's like, you know, 5'9 or something. He's this close. So I'm like, um, I calculated 37 more years. I'm going to pass him. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. So I like um, sprinting, high jumping, and uh, speed golf. 
So you run around the course as fast as you can, and um, it has the golf element, which is so fun and exciting to me. And it's nothing like going out there and, and just you know suffering for hours with your heart up at uh, uh, you know high red line zone. There's a time and a place for that, and it, it's uh, ideally the shortest duration possible. I mean, look at Sisson. He still walks around a little stiff in the hip flexors because of all those marathon runnings. It's just, you know, it's the way it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. How? Um, mellow things out when it gets dark. I like to wear the yellow glasses. Um, green fields in the house, too. Love that stuff. So um, the yellow tinted glasses will, um, will help you... Uh, uh, kick melatonin release in on cue without being disturbed by the blue light spectrum that comes from artificial light bulb, indoor lighting, computer screen lighting. It's a UV protected light colored lens so you can still see. You don't have to stumble around your house with blackout glasses, but that's one way to mellow things out in the evening. And then in, in your home environment, in your habitat, you want to mellow things out and make it as dark as possible uh, after it gets dark, right? Simple. And then you'll feel sleepy and you'll go through those natural cues of wanting to go to bed when you get sleepy. If you're not sleepy because you're the Netflix king and you're always up late and you, you call yourself a night owl, I don't think there's any um, you know, literally true night owl. We're all, we have had two and a half million years rising and setting in the sun has governed our sleep and wake cycle. So these night owls can you know, stand there over in the corner with the people that believe we're genetically adapted to consume sugar, right? That's a really lonely corner, right, Kate? Yeah, there's... No, I'm a sugar burner. Oh, who's the guy? Nick Young. So there's one, Nick Young's there, right? The guy on the Lakers. He countered Kate's advice by saying, no, I'm, you know, I, f I feel on sugar. I want Fruit Loops for breakfast every day. And he scored 27 points last night. So what do you, you know, are you going to argue with that? Yes. Okay. So mellow things out at night is the big one. I know there's those uh, uh, comments like, uh, uh, wake up and expose yourself to bright sunlight in the morning and that'll kick your circadian cue on and I don't know. I'm not big on that one. If I want to sleep in, I'll try to get the blindfold going and the sleep noise. I still can't sleep in very well, but when it comes time to go to bed on time, there's no, making, there's no true making up for it with sleeping in. I tell my kids that. They sleep in until noon, like all the time, like all summer long. They wake up at noon. You know, what are we doing today? I'm like, I don't know. The day's almost over. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> so uh, the, bi the big thing is artificial light and digital stimulation in the evenings. Try to cut back on that. Yeah. Oh, wise guy in the front row. That's why you got here two hours early for that front row seat. Wind down, wind down. No, you know what? The last time I drunk of any, any consequence was uh, in college because that was just another phase. Injured, drinking cool dude, but really not that cool. And then, actually, I, you know why I spun out of that is because my friend who'd come visit me at Santa Barbara, he didn't drink, and he was so successful at all the parties because he was the only sober one, and so he could have his way with whatever he wanted to do. And then so I'm like, that's a really good strategy. I'm going to try that. So me and him just didn't drink the last two years of college, and we were the only ones that you know, really knew what was going on. So we could make good choices, <laughs> good manipulative choices. It was wonderful. I highly recommend it for any kind of social encounter. Go to the, you know, the meetup or whatever and be that one in the room that's smiling and hugging everybody and, oh boy, now I'm getting in trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Um, she said, 
where, you know, what, what if you do have goals, dreams, aspirations, you're competitive? Of course, I'm a professional triathlete. I, I wanted to win very badly, and I, I love the competition, and I love the winning, and it was wonderful all 31 times that I did over that nine-year period. And I could probably name all those cities and all the race details, but we don't have time. So um, that's fine. You, you, can get, you can get caught up, but you have to have that, that, that pure motivation. Then it's, then it's wonderful. And is there anybody you know, or can we refer to any example of people who are comfortable and well-adjusted and highly successful? I'd say, yeah. I know there's some good role models out there, right? Sure. Yeah. It's just, I love doing it and blah, blah, blah. And there's, there's no problem with being competitive and, and wanting to win and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just when you, you know, spin out of that position, of, like the first... The first part of my story when I was winning those races and I just thought it was so wonderful, um, if it was happening to my best friend, it might have been a similar sensation like, wow, isn't that cool? Look at this magazine. But I didn't have that emotional, personal investment, that self-esteem attachment where it was life or death. It was just you sort of have a, a comfortable, healthy detachment to what's going on so that I'm not all of a sudden, you know, the king of the universe just because I won a stupid triathlon race. That's where you come into trouble. Or because, oh, now you're making a lot of money, and now you drive a, a, a badass car and, and wear the finest clothes and, and go to the clubs and close them down because you're the coolest person in town. Eh, you know, you want to be that person? It's probably, probably better to be, you know, let's say under the radar, comfortable with yourself without needing all these accoutrements and so forth, right? But if you do like that stuff, no problem with it. You like making money, spending money, all those kind of things. It doesn't, it's not, it's not inherently bad. It's only bad when we make it bad or troublesome, right? What was that? Anyone else? All right, let's get Thanks so much, you guys. That was fun. Yeah.